Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. Hey, Facade Geeks. This is Mick Patterson with the Facade Tectonics Institute. 118 authors managed to navigate a blind peer review process, many for the first time, administered by the Institute's Scientific, Artistic, and Technical Review Committee. Four of these papers were selected by committee chairs, Professors Noble and Kensick at the University of Southern California School of Architecture. We'll be interviewing these authors over the next four weeks leading up to the World Congress, where all 118 papers will be presented. The presentation sessions are the centerpiece of Facades Month, August 2020, and will take place on consecutive Wednesdays in August, with additional workshops held on Thursdays. So please join us in celebrating these authors and supporting the Institute. It's going to be a great event with abundant learning opportunities in our pursuit of lifelong learning. There are some absolutely great papers in the mix. I'm witness to that. I've seen them. For more details and to register, visit facadetectonics.org or reach out to us at events at facadetectonics.org or simply use the links included in the show notes. So let's jump into an interview. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Rebecca Hartwell, the author of uh, one of the four papers that was selected as the best for our upcoming World Congress. Um, Rebecca's paper is End-of-Life Challenges in Facade Design, a very interesting topic. Rebecca is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you very much. So uh, what's the status on your PhD candidacy now? So I'm in my third year of my PhD now. Um, So I'm working up uh, over the next year to submission, um, hopefully around April time. Um, but just sort of managing the different projects that I've got on the go still at the moment. Um, and then we'll see. Well, this is a certainly, a, certainly a good project that you have uh, as the subject of this paper. Congratulations on, uh, on uh, being selected as one of the, the four top papers for the Congress. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I really, I really appreciate this topic and appreciate the time that you took in putting this paper together. Uh, for our listeners, why don't you uh, give us a brief description of the paper? Sure. So, well, a bit of background into my project, I suppose. Um, it's looking at end-of-life challenges in facade design as a whole from a few different aspects. So there's been a lot of work sort of looking at the circular economy within the built environment in the last 20 years or so. And I think um, just looking at the facades in particular is quite an interesting research area, just in terms of how design has adva- advanced in the past 30 years or so, um, potentially becoming more complex in the types of connections that are used in the facade and also incorporating more materials themselves um, and so it's a project that sort of sat together with my supervisor uh, Professor Mara Overend um, to talk about uh, specifically uh, within the end-of-life context um, because we sort of realised that facades are, there's been a focus on improving the operational energy of facades and how they contribute to building performance in use but less so thinking about 
how this might influence what can happen at the end of life and how we can recover these materials. I think it's fairly well known that sort of becoming increasingly important to make sure that we reuse and recycle materials as best as possible to make sure that we're getting the the most environmental value out of them and have the least impact on the environment as a whole. And this issue of how can we actually get the materials in as best value as possible is something that we wanted to focus on for my research. So this, uh, the paper that uh, submitted for the Facade Tectonics um, conference, is focusing on the environmental side of my research. And I'm also looking at the behavioural uh, issues. So speaking of the supply chain from architects, clients and developers through to demolition contractors about some of the main um, potential barriers and motivations that might help um, initiate a, a better reuse and recycling supply chain for facades and then also from the technical uh, perspective what are the challenges um, at the moment in terms of separability of components that might um, influence how we can uh, make sure that we can actually take um, the materials at the highest value at the end of life um, but as I mentioned so this this paper is, is looking at the environmental um aspect of that research and what we found is there's, there's a lot of the life cycle assessments that are available that start to look at embodied carbon and operational carbon um, which are great and, and perform some sort of um, opportunity to compare different designs and have a benchmark design and be able to look at the a comparison between different materials um, and, and what might be more advantageous from embodied carbon perspective but very few of these actually then go on to look at Okay, then based on whatever design you choose and what sort of connection details you choose and, and what type of materials you choose, whether they're composite or or just um, standard materials, how does that influence what you might be able to do when it comes to taking that system apart, whether it be for refurbishment or demolition? And that really, that issue of how, how you're able to take these systems apart really has a big influence in terms of the recovered carbon that you can get from the system at the end of life. So this paper just tries to look at um, developing a framework really to be able to assess um, facade systems in the context of end of life as well as the embodied carbon phase. And we hope to develop this further really to be able to apply it to different facade designs, be able to see if there really is a trade-off between um, the initial design options that you, that you select and you choose and the ability to recover the materials at a later stage. Yeah, this embodied carbon thing is uh, is really interesting. I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this and, uh, and to some extent writing about it. Uh, it's pretty amazing how it emerged rather abruptly and fairly recently in the dialogue, right? I mean, the, the focus has been pretty consistently for a long time on uh, operational energy consumption, operational carbon emissions, and new building construction, right? Definitely. Yeah, and I think for good reason. Um, with in mind, building is supposed to last for beyond a sort of typical product life cycle where you might have a mobile phone that may have a three, four-year lifespan. You're hoping that your building will last forever, sort of in most architects' minds. So I think the operational carbon uh, factor is extremely important, but I think it's just equally important to also bear in mind um, any influence of embodied carbon. And as, as we are sort of moving towards buildings that have very fairly low operational carbon emissions, that relative significance in terms of 
contribution of embodied carbon in terms of percentage to the whole life cycle starts becoming more significant. So I think it, it is a stage that can't be forgotten about to make sure that you're not sort of just shifting the problem of carbon emissions to a different stage of the building life cycle. Which is which is what we've been doing, right? I mean, uh, like, for example, with, uh, you know, the double skin designs, we've been working with only half the equation. We've been, you know, improving operational carbon uh, at the expense of embodied carbon without really recognizing that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, as, as I say, it's, it's up for debate in terms of what the trade-off actually is, um, because you can't uh, dispute the savings that you have in terms of the operational performance of those types of facade systems. But really, you want to make sure that even sort of beyond construction, are they definitely performing to those early standards that were set out um, in terms of operational performance? Because if you're not, they're sort of already uh, potentially a, a, a missing sort of um, saving there in terms of carbon emissions um, that you factored in when you were calculating your early life cycle assessment. Um, and those savings sort of only come true if they are constructed in that immaculate way. Um, so I think that it, the, the great life cycle assessments, you tend to consider a 60-year lifespan or whatever lifespan you like to consider. Um, and, and then you're able to say, you're able to sort of um, state that the decisions you make to improve the operational performance are valid because you say that over this lifespan, you will make these savings back. Um, but if you, if, if you don't actually meet those standards in performance and in use, then that embodied carbon factor can be quite significant and an issue in, in the long run, really. And I think what I find quite interesting and important now is the fact that sort of whatever design choices we're making now in terms of embodied carbon are going to impact what happens in the next 10, 20 years. And when we're looking at the climate crisis, we're looking at issues that are going to come about in the next 10, 20 years. So we're looking at these lifespans of 60 years and saying that embodied carbon might not be such a significant factor. But really, with the state of the um, climate at the moment, we need to be focusing on those decisions that have the most influence now in terms of carbon emissions in this present day in the next 10 years. Right. That's, um, that's what is often referred to as the time value of carbon, right? Which weights the, um, the value of carbon savings uh, as a factor of time uh, and the, you know, the, the sooner the better from the standpoint of climate change, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think, and that's, that's, that's the decision we're making now, of course. And I think that within facades, it's also particularly interesting because you're looking at some components of maybe a typical curtain walling unit, which might not survive sort of beyond um, 25 years. Sort of speaking to some um, insulated glazing unit manufacturers, they sort of state that, they'll give a warranty of 12 years or so for an IGU unit, which will mean that sort of beyond that, you can't necessarily guarantee its performance. Um, and so if you're looking at maybe um, refurbishing the building in some way at beyond that sort of 12-year lifespan, you need to start thinking about what are we going to be able to do with these materials? And you might have the recurring embodied carbon um, in terms of having to upgrade them in some way to meet the performance that you actually want to have. Right. 
so uh, this term, um, I was not familiar with. I, I like it a lot, reclamation potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is really the focus of your study, right, is to, uh, is to put sort of a quantitative framework around uh, evaluating um, a, sort of a metric for reclamation potential, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, when it comes to looking at uh, design for disassembly and um, choosing designs that will have the opportunity to be able to uh, deconstruct and and replace the materials where possible. It can be it's to include it in the initial life cycle assessment can be quite dangerous because you can sort of potentially, um, if you start including reclaimed embodied carbon um, in the early design stage, you can start double counting the um, savings that you actually will make. So I think it's important to keep it separate. And that's where this this framework, we would like it to sit really in terms of being able to just have a second measure. So we know that we, we can look at embodied carbon and operational carbon but what about another design parameter um, in terms of thinking about how can I measure how well this facade system compares to another in terms of the ability to disassemble it and effectively open up a new store of materials for recycling and reuse? Because ultimately, when we're talking about specifying materials that are low in embodied carbon and looking at using recycled aluminium and recycled glass as much as possible, we're only going to be able to open up that stock of materials if we can actually recover from these systems at the end of life. And we want to know, is that actually possible at the moment? And if not, can we quantify that in some way? So that's really what this stream is hoping to do. Right. And you've developed a, a, a technique for that evaluation. Yeah, exactly that. You know, so I, you know, the, the work that I've done in this has not been quantitative. It's been more qualitative. It's just been, you know, looking at the problems uh, like, for example, you, you talk about the insulated glass unit, uh, double glazed unit. Um, that the problem there is essentially, is it not in the bonding of these things together? It's hard to, 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 um, separate the materials in uh, in is bonding does bonding become something that you know that that you have identified as a barrier to this reclamation potential yeah definitely it's certainly a challenge um and that's why we want to include service life in this assessment this quantitative assessment that we look at because it might be although it's unlikely but if you were to refurbish a building in perhaps in a six-year lifespan, perhaps you can reuse insulated glazing units as it is. But talking about 20, 30-year lifespans, it might be slightly more reluctant to reuse the insulated glazing units as a complete system, um, just because you can't assure the performance of it. Um, and so then it comes down to looking at sort of the next best approach, which could be component reuse in some way. Um, but to be able to do, use component reuse, you have to be able to disassemble these products, so the glass, um, the spacer bars, and the butyl seal. And this can be very difficult. So if we've had, uh, we did have some uh, insulating glazing units that once came into the lab, and we had to look at we we're measuring the surface flatness of the glass um, as it for a quality study. But um, 
I found that just trying to actually take the seal apart was extremely labour intensive and you're sort of having to cut as much as possible, use all different types of solvents so just to try and get into the unit itself and separate the glass away from its seal. Um, so definitely adhesives in terms of design for disassembly strategies, they sort of are um, the antithesis really of any kind of disassembly strategy you want to perform. And, and similarly with there's another another product, sort of composite product that we know um, could cause quite a challenge um, for reuse or and also even recycling. Um, so the next step in the recovery hierarchy is uh, laminated glass products, which uh, effectively are like having an adhesive between two glass panes. But you have a what's called it's a polyvinyl butyl interlayer, which is um, bonded to two glass substrates. Um, and that's widely used in industry because it, it's known for having um, great safety performance. Um, if it breaks, uh, the glass is held to the interlayer and um, it, it's widely specified within industry laminated glass. But in terms of being able to recycle it, it can be quite challenging. Um, and that's another sort of project that we're looking at, actually the separation of glass from its interlayer um, to be able to recycle it in, in high value. So are you look, actually looking at, at techniques for doing that? We are, yeah. So um, at sort of early stages of my research, sort of looking at different processes that uh, can better recycle laminated glass. And a lot of them involve destructively crushing the laminated glass and separating out the PVB and a centrifugal process. And then you have glass cullets, but it's not at a high enough purity to go back into float glass. And this is sort of one of the key challenges at the moment in particularly in the glass supply chain is actually getting the glass back to glass manufacturers from um, a building application in high quality to be able to reincorporate it in the glass float glass manufacturing process and glass manufacturers will only really want to accept this uh, product if it's at high quality um, and they're just quite wary about this interlayer getting into the uh, float glass mix so that's on the at the moment experimentally we're looking at um separating on a very small scale for now um the glass sheets i was i i was surprised uh early in my research uh to find that i was shocked actually to find that architectural glass was not not recycled for the reasons that you have just discussed you know, it, it, it's downcycled occasionally, but a lot of it ends up in the landfill. But I'm, you know, the, the, I'm sort of U.S. centric in that. What are what practices are going on now with respect to recycling glass in Europe and the U.K.? So uh, outside the U.K., there are in the Netherlands, they have some good approaches for being able to take back uh, architectural glass some of them which involve having some sort of deposit return scheme for the glass so that the incentive is there for it to be collected um, when it comes to the demolition stage. And I think they also have generally slightly more stringent regulations in terms of um, the recovery of materials at the end of life. In the UK, I'd say it's a little less um, advanced in terms of uh, the supply chain itself. And I think that at the moment... Um, just slightly stuck in a in a phase where demolition contractors at the moment um they wouldn't necessarily value from speaking to them they don't necessarily value the glasses having a high um, monetary value at the end of life and 
at, at the moment it's commonly sold on um, with aggregate material um, and less so uh, linked up with a glass manufacturer or recycling facility to be able to put back into the flat glass mix. Um, and so I think this is yeah uh, definitely a, another a step and there is there are a couple of research projects that are going on that start to look at the uh, supply chain and the economics of, of making this more facilitating this process um to be much better than it is um but as i say it, at the moment i think it's a case of getting the glass manufacturers on board as well to be prepared to accept um and potentially process the material and if not looking for other people to be able to process the post-consumer glass um to get it back into the glass supply chain mm-hmm. so maybe uh Instead of going directly back to the glass manufacturer, there's a, a an interim processing step. Uh, yeah, I, I could see that possibility. It's a it's a it's a daunting problem though, and you know, IGUs the the double uh, double glazing is one thing, but uh, when you look at the fa- facade system itself, I mean, I think there are things that you know potentially could be done in terms of design to make, you know, to design for reclamation uh, potential. Right. Uh, And, you know, like, like I I did a paper in the past um, called the millennium IGU, which was, you know, uh, uh, an IGU that was intended to last for uh, a thousand years. (laughs) And it was, you know, it it was difficult to wrap my head around that. But basically what it ends up being is a a disassemblable product. Uh, And especially when you look at at a more complex system like the the facade system itself, it definitely seems like there are opportunities for designing the facade system to begin with to facilitate or to enhance its reclamation potential. I mean, have you thought about those kind of issues? Definitely. Yeah, I, I think that's always on my mind as well at the moment, because I think that uh, I think we can sort of clearly identify that there's two approaches to this problem, really, in terms of um, circular economy within facade design. I think there's the approach of how do we actually reclaim from existing systems, and that's from the existing building stock. So buildings that may be considered inefficient now that are opening up for renovation um, built in the 70s and 80s. Um, and how do we recover materials efficiently from from those systems? And they, there's technical challenges involved there. But then the other side is, of course, as you mentioned, this: how do we design differently to prevent this happening in the future? And it's something that I'm not actively researching on from the experimental side at the moment, but thinking about how can we potentially create an IDU unit that doesn't have these adhesive fixings that is potentially um, fitted by mechanical fixings um, and and still have the same performance or if it's slightly less performance, can we quantify the sort of trade-off um, in terms of having that opportunity to disassemble it more easily um, versus any reduction in, in the performance itself? Um, but I think with this, yeah, it's just educating the awareness of, and making sure that disassembly is quite an important design factor, really. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, looking at better uh, better connection types, maybe debondable adhesives as well, and that, that type, those types of research areas are, are hugely important in terms of tackling this problem. 
people, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, the door, window, and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America, featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Shuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Shuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA, NFRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. Hi, I'm Mark Jacobson, market manager for Carrari. Trosifold, part of the Carrari Group, is a leading global producer of Trosifold PVB and Centriglass Ionoplast interlayers for laminated safety glass applications in the architectural, automotive, and photovoltaic industries. Trosifold offers the world's broadest portfolio of innovative glass laminating solutions, including structural and functional interlayers for safety and security applications, sound insulation, and UV protection. For decorative applications, Trosifold supplies colored interlayers, digitally printable films, and other innovative products for interior design projects. Our ultra-clear films exhibit the lowest yellowness index in the industry. Many innovative projects that include Trosifol interlayers can be found in our Laminated Glass News, which is accessible through our website, www.trosifol.com. Look us up the next time you have a challenging laminated glass application in your project. One of the things that you note in your paper is um, that uh, a, a, a typical modern-day facade system constitutes between 13 and 30 percent of the initial embodied carbon of buildings exceeded only by the foundations and the structural frame. So it's mm -hmm. a very relevant topic. Yeah, definitely. And I think that sort of as we're looking to focus on carbon emissions and globally and everything, we sort of have to address all areas of the, the life cycle of, of buildings as a whole. Um, and I think just taking taking bits off every structural, every, sorry, building element is important. Um, and the facade is a, plays a huge factor in that. And it's not just that initial, that's the initial embodied carbon um, contribution. Um, but then with facades, we know that they can be replaced during the building life cycle slightly more frequently than structural elements or certainly more than foundations for refurbishment reasons. Um, maybe because they've reached the end of life, not for a performance reason, but there's also the aesthetic person, a reason that people like to perhaps have a, a change of, of look and change the aesthetic and the facade is responsible for that. So perhaps a slightly more subjective sort of end of life that's reached, but it's one to consider and and that, that leads to this recurring embodied carbon throughout the building life cycle. So that's um, a point that can't really be missed. Um, when thinking about the building as a whole and its its environmental impact. Yeah, I'm interested in the the. I haven't seen anybody. Maybe maybe you have uh, that has done an assessment of uh, you know sort of a comparison of uh, the 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 replacement strategy of facade systems 
uh, where, you know, for example, so, so you have the structural system, you've got uh, the, the facade system uh, and, you know, with different uh, service lives, right? And one, one of the most, especially at least in the U.S., the, the most predominant form of facade renovation is really replacement, right? The, the curtain wall system is stripped off and a new one is put up. And there's the the possibility that you could minimize the carbon profile through uh, a planned cycle of um, of uh, uh, recurring maintenance, uh, as you say, and uh, maybe even partial renovations uh, over time. You know, as the the structural system keeps going uh, and the foundations keep going. Um, but you know you have you do have this recurring embodied carbon debt from the maintenance and renovation activities. So you know the question is, is that would that strategy be effective? Is, is it you know has anybody shown through analysis that you can save on the overall embodied carbon footprint through that kind of a strategy? Have you seen anything like that? Um. Myself, not specifically to that effect. Uh, I have seen a study actually that was in uh, surface around 1996. It was, I think, by Colin Kernan, um, which did look at uh, recurring uh, embodied carbon of different building elements. And that's sort of where I first sort of started thinking about this idea of the fact that you will have this um, additional contribution to the building life cycle. But not directly in terms of um, looking at the the renovation side, um, but I suppose when thinking about that, it's, it is also important to think about the benefits that you will be getting. Uh, renovation, I suppose, also always happens for a reason, and, and if it's to improve the operational performance, um, I think it's always. Im- important to consider the trade-off that you, you might have. So if, if, if you are updating the facade, but you're getting a, a payback in terms of operational performance, potentially you're able to validate the, the necessary reasons for doing it. Um, right. That would have to be part of the, the assessment. Definitely. But, you know, you also, you also uh, really should factor in the, the um, uh, somewhat – uh, more intangible benefits that you would get too, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, health, comfort, productivity, that kind of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, I think it's always difficult to potentially quantify those types of, um, benefits in terms of occupant comfort and productivity. Um, but there is, it's actually, uh, I'm aware of research of going into that area as well, looking at different facade typologies and actually trying to put a quantitative figure onto how they affect occupant comfort. And actually a, a colleague within my my group here at Cambridge um, is looking at the Alessandro Luna Nevado um, and, and doing quite a lot of interesting work in that area. Um, but as you say, it, I think it, it is it's important to also include that in the, in the equation in the assessment. Yeah. So I'm very interested to uh, to to have you express your thoughts on on service life. You know, I mean, this is something that I've had a long term interest in, and in, and I always take the opportunity to, to ask people, uh, and and I want to ask you, and also sort of what what you 
what your colleagues, what what the um, marketplace, I guess, uh, thinks in terms of how long a building should last. You know, talking about service life, what are the expectations uh, of how long a building should last? Uh, especially, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, residential buildings. I'm talking about the kind of large, you know, commercial urban uh, buildings um, uh, and also the facade systems. What is an appropriate service life for the facade system? What do you what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I think that it, it can in some ways be subjective. I think end of life can be reached for some subjective reasons and then some more um, quantitative reasons, um, which can be um, tested in some way in terms of performance, whether it's looking at uh, the strength, the performance in terms of material strength, the component strength, or looking at the functional performance of a facade system as a whole, the functional performance um, in terms of view values and actually measuring that in some way. I think the building as a whole, it's um, difficult for me to say, I think, how, how long the building should last because I think I'd, it changes between buildings. I think most architects will say that they don't they build they don't build a building to be knocked down at some point they they build it with the idea in mind that it's going to be there for a very long time um which is uh i think a great intention i think it, we should always be sort of designing for longevity but i think there's always the consideration that it might to bear in mind that it might change at some point the facade is a great building element that can express um, architectural intent. And at some point, at some stage, you might want to update it to perhaps refresh the building. Or it might be that, for example, we see in the last 30, 40 years, buildings that were built maybe in the 60s and 70s uh, becoming redundant in terms of their service life as a result of um, increasing legislation on energy performance targets. Um, and mm-hmm. that that's something that potentially can't necessarily be argued with. And, and so in, in that case, um, we're looking at the, the service life potentially has been met for if, if you're judging it based on that performance factor. Um, and in that case, um, we think about how can we disassemble the facade systems and manage them in the best way to recover them in high value, whether it's looking where the components reuse or, or, or high value recycling. Um, that's the sort of next best approach. Right. There can be a lot of reasons for uh, building obsolescence. I mean, I, you know, when I first started studying that, I was surprised to find my assumption was that it would be degradation. Mm. But, uh, you know, I was surprised to find that that is most often not the case, that mm. it's some form of technical or social uh, obsolescence or aesthetic obsolescence or, you know, yeah. there are many factors of obsolescence and uh, not a lot of we, we've done a whole lot of study. In, in terms of um, consumer product obsolescence, but much less so in terms of buildings. But one thing for sure is that, you know, uh, as these buildings age and, and, and assuming that we do buildings that are uh, uh, designed to last a long time, at some point, we're going to want to take them apart. And uh, that's, you know, the, the, this is an important thing to be able to accommodate and to recognize in the design, the initial design of the building. And this is what you're working on with your reclama- uh, reclamation uh, potential 
And you've got a very sophisticated analysis here uh, for accomplishing this, which ultimately is embodied in uh, a set of equations. Is this the kind of thing that, you know, this is my last question, really. Is this what you've done here? Is this something that could be incorporated into a lifecycle assessment tool? I think it it would be useful to use it alongside a lifecycle assessment tool. So definitely part of the environmental assessment process. Um, but I think, uh, as I mentioned before, I think it's important to be careful about where you attribute this reclaims carbon um, alongside the whole life cycle uh, assessment. Um, I think it's uh, designed for disassembling and quantifying the environmental savings that might come about from um, disassembly and reuse have to be assessed as a separate factor um, because ultimately whoever is assessing, uh, doing the initial environmental assessment um, and specifying the design, they, at the moment, uh, they don't have the responsibility um, to follow up how it is taking a part at the end of life. So it might not be, although it, it might be selected for um, a certain uh, a certain end of life factor that you may have calculated using this type of assessment, it might not be followed up um, in the long run. So I think it, it's important that it's assessed alongside uh, this typical life cycle assessment work. I think you've tapped into a very interesting vein here. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's important. You've done some really interesting work. Uh, and I really uh, appreciate the fact that you have taken the time to um, to put together this paper and submit it to uh, Facade Tectonics for our World Congress. I look forward to seeing your presentation next month. Um, any parting comments, uh, any uh, last messages that you would like to communicate to our uh, listeners? I was just going to say th thanks very much. Um, I appreciate the opportunity really to talk about the topic. Um, I think it is, it's great to know that it's sort of gaining traction generally I think as a whole in the UK and also it seems in the US and 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 there's a lot of work going on outside the UK and Europe as well um, but I think that I just want to be clear that I think that with all of these um, design parameters when it comes to looking at the environmental assessment um, they each have a, a, an important uh, part to play and although we're looking at we're looking at focusing on embodied carbon and also uh, reclamation potential based on how uh, products are able to be and systems are able to be disassembled, they they always have to be considered alongside um, the operational carbon effects, um, and and it, it's a function of the initial design in the first instance. So I think we have to be looking to all stages of the life cycle. What type of materials are we specifying? Um, and, and just be thinking with that long-term approach of not only should we be looking for low-embodied carbon materials in the first instance, but how can we make it easier for the next generation as well to actually tap into that, that material resource in the, in the first instance? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a complicated balancing act designing, uh, designing a, a, a sustainable building, right? I mean, there are so many things to consider, so many things to balance, but this is an important one. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate the work that you've done here. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about it, Rebecca. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, thank you. And I hope to also just have be able to look at different facade systems as well. So if you have any any contractors or any different construction drawings and designs to look at, it would be great to apply the assessment to it to, to compare different design types. Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Rebecca. You have a great day, and uh, I look forward to seeing your presentation next month at the World Congress. Looking forward to it. Great to speak to you. Thank you for your time.